Hi, I'm Fiona Willer from Unpacking Weight Science and today I'm going to do a journal article reading because this is in my opinion a really important article and I know that a lot of people don't get around to reading scientific articles uh, or even as this one is which is a um, review and opinion piece in a, uh, a scientific journal. Now this article is called What's in a Word? on weight stigma and terminology. And it was written by Angela Meadows and Sigrun uh, Daniels-Dotter. Sorry, Sigrun, for completely mangling your name. <laughs> it was published in Frontiers in Psychology on the 5th of October, 2016. So still pretty recent. Now, the reason I want to read this out is uh, because it's fabulous. It is an open access article. So um, you are, you know, anyone can read it as long as they've got an internet connection. But, uh, you know, there are some people who can't or don't have the opportunity to do so. So I'm going to do it now. All right, here we are. In 2015, the third annual International Weight Stigma Conference was held in Reykjavik, Iceland. One of the highly anticipated sessions of the two-day event was a roundtable discussion on terminology used in weight stigma research and professional practice to describe higher weight bodies and to identify best practice, how to engage the conversation without being part of the problem. We tried to include a range of voices on the panel, including weight stigma researchers from health and social sciences, a bioethicist, a journal editor, a representative of an obesity organisation and a size acceptance advocate, uh, activist. At the end of the hour, the only thing that everybody agreed on was that there was no simple answer, other than to respect and honour the wishes of the person or people we were speaking to about, or about in any given situation. Part of the problem is that the very act of labelling is a process of othering, one that creates a distinction between us and them, which raises the question, who is entitled to do the labelling and why? And in what conditions is such a distinction needed? For example, it is undoubtedly useful to define a group for research purposes, for example, so that the barriers and discrimination they face can be quantified and addressed. However, within the medical setting, the main reason to create a separate category for larger bodies is because they are to be treated differently than slimmer patients. Whether or not such a differential treatment is perceived to be necessary reflects fundamentally divergent framings of higher weight bodies. It's unlikely there can ever be agreement about people whose solution to body diversity is social justice and acceptance of this diversity, and those whose solution is elimination of the difference. And yet, there has been a move in recent years, particularly among weight-focused research journals, to mandate the ubiquitous use of person-first language, such as person with obesity, rather than obese person. Person-first language originated through disability advocacy, and many organisations now recommend or obligate phrases such as person with disability in place of disabled person. Yet the term is far from universally accepted, particularly among the target population, Given the current promotion of its use in the obesity field, it's worth looking a little more closely into how person-first language contributes to the ongoing and increasing stigmatisation of heavier bodies. The origin and intention of the phrase is superficially benevolent, suggesting that a person be considered holistically and not defined by a particular negative characteristic. However, a number of new and likely unintended consequences arise from this approach. Hudak in 2001, distinguished between benign and toxic labelling, where the former is simply descriptive, but the latter can lead to oppression and stigmatisation. 
It would be considered absurd to describe a native of Germany, for example, as a person with Germanness, because it adjectives associated with nationality are descriptive and usually unvalenced. In contrast, the apparent need to separate a person from the characteristic in question implies an inherent adverse judgment. Second, the idea that we are all people, but some of us are burdened with this millstone around our neck, both denotes that only by fixing or removing this blight can we become like everyone else, and precludes that we can ever be normal in our current form. Thus, far from returning our humanity to us or fostering our dignity, we are marked with a defect, the very definition of stigma proffered by Goffman in his seminal work on the nature of spoiled identity. Person-first language is mired in the medicalization of body state. Since the American Medical Association controversially declared obesity a disease in 2013, in contravention to the recommendations of their own scientific committee, the result has not been that heavier people are treated more respectably or viewed by the medical profession in their complete personhood. Rather, anti-fat attitudes remain high among health professionals and specialists in the field, and the endocrine society even went so far as to release guidelines suggesting clinicians should treat the obesity before all else, prioritising weight management over clinical effectiveness and tolerability in prescribing choices for conditions such as schizophrenia, epilepsy, depression and HIV. And yet, Resolving to use the language preferred by the target group itself does not simplify the decision. While some obesity organisations that call for the use of person-first language claim to speak for all higher weight people, this population is far from homogeneous, and individuals who do engage with such organisations will be a self-selecting group who are seeking a medical solution to something they consider inherently problematic. Indeed, a coalition of size acceptance and fat rights groups have challenged the claim that these organisations speak for a larger people as a whole, criticising the top-down setting of the terminology agenda and the absence of grassroots input from social justice organisations that fight for fat people's interests. In contrast, several studies have attempted to ascertain actual individual preferences. A number of these studies have used the weight preference questionnaire, which asks individuals to rate their preference for 11 terms that a doctor could use to start a discussion about them being at least 50 pounds over their recommended weight. However, two factors limit the validity of this measure to identify language preferred by higher weight people to describe their bodies. First, the questionnaire prompts participants a priori to think of weight as a problem. Second, the 11 terms used in the weight preference questionnaire were chosen after consultation with patients in treatment-seeking settings. Thus, neither the list of words generated nor the scenario used in the exercise is judgment-free. Other studies looking at terminology preference, while not necessarily recruiting treatment-seeking patients, have also been framed in terms of language to be used in a clinical setting to discuss problem weight. All of the above studies reported similar findings. Neutral terms such as weight or BMI were preferred, independent of participant age, gender, ethnicity or BMI. Phrases including the words problem, unhealthy or excess were preferred less. In all cases, obesity and fat were regarded as the least desirable. The implications of this for clinical practice are reasonably clear, but the generalizability of the findings to other contexts is debatable, and these may not be the words that would be chosen by heavier people outside of a weight loss setting. Support for this contention comes from a qualitative study of the lived experience of 76 Australian adults with a BMI greater, of, greater than 30. The sample included a wide age range and most had been heavier for the majority of their lives. Almost all had experienced weight stigma at some point. 
while the participants were not uh, were all unhappy with their weight and felt responsible for changing it, 80% of them hated or disliked the words obesity and morbidly obese and would rather be called fat or overweight. Thus, although the medical establishment positions obesity as a neutral term, higher weight individuals do not seem to like it and associate it with increased societal disapproval. Importantly, Smith and colleagues noted that words such as obese, overweight and heavy are often used interchangeably, assuming that their meaning is equivalent in the eyes of the researchers and among research participants. However, their research demonstrated that a fictional woman who described herself in a personal ad using either what the researchers labelled as positive, full-figured, negative, which was fat, obese or overweight, or objective, 197 pounds, terms to describe her weight was rated differently on friendliness, attractiveness and intelligence uh, based on which terms were used and was always rated more positively when no weight descriptor was included in the ad. Interestingly, ratings of her level of fatness also varied significantly depending on the term used. Further, a series of studies by Broku and Essies suggest that even though students assigned similar body size silhouettes to people labelled as fat and overweight, they rated fat people significantly less favourably than overweight people using an attitude thermometer and rated both less favourably than, than seven other social groups attributed more negative characteristics to the fat person and were less likely to recognise fat people as being targets of discrimination than overweight people. They found the effect was mediated via greater endorsement of negative weight-related stereotypes in a, in a fat compared with an overweight target. Yet, despite the word fat being almost universally considered pejorative within the wider community, it is a preferred term within the fat acceptance movement, whose reclamation of the word as a neutral descriptor aims to counter the negative stereotypes that have become associated with it and normalises the existence of fat bodies. Thus, identifying as fat becomes an act of empowerment and a marker of self-respect and unity. The same approach has been utilised by other human rights groups, such as the LBGTQ movement's embracing of terms that have been historically used to shame and marginalise them. Ideally, it should be the target group itself that gets to decide on the label used to describe them. To date, however, research on the preferences of this group has been skewed towards treatment-seeking populations, and therefore the findings of such research cannot be regarded as representing a consensus. Weight loss seeking populations differ from their non-treatment seeking peers in many respects, such as health status, self-acceptance and empowerment. A very different picture would likely emerge from groups involved in size acceptance activism, and yet their voices have generally not been included in efforts to engage with the target population. As an analogy, this would be similar to asking women in the early days of the feminist movement about their views on women's social status without including participants with a feminist viewpoint. Many women at that time would have agreed with paternalistic views, such as the woman's role was to stay in the home with the children and the man was the head of the household. In fact, during important struggles in the women's rights movement, some groups of women actively fought against those demanding legal and civil rights. Thus, consensus within a socially marginalised group can neither be realistically expected nor made to serve as a prerequisite for moving towards social justice and equality. While the word fat may still be viewed negatively by many people, if prior human rights struggles are any indicator, it is likely to gain increased public acceptance as the fight for body equality evolves. We are currently at a moment in history where this fight has only just begun, and we are bound to witness considerable changes in the way we think about bodies and acceptable terms for those bodies in the year to come. 
Ultimately, whether you describe somebody as fat, overweight, obese, big, heavy, voluptuous, or simply higher weight, these labels all reflect certain culturally constructed values. It behoves us to ask ourselves whether the words we use do indeed affirm the respect and human dignity of the target group, whether they place the group as equal to other social groups, and whether they promote or hamper the well-being and empowerment of that group. If not, we will only perpetuate the stigma we are claiming to abolish. As a first step, we suggest that best practice in research, publishing and healthcare would be to use neutral terms with weight and higher weight likely to be suitable in the majority of situations. We would also exhort journal editors to remove the insistence on person-first terminology that precludes more nuanced consideration of the implications of language use. So there you are. That was a reading of... What's in a word on weight stigma and terminology? Hope you found it enjoyable and interesting. Um, thank you for listening.